going to keep the scripture readings going in Exodus, and then I'm going to continue to preach uh, a sermon series in the book of Exodus. So we're in Exodus chapter 2, and uh, take your Bibles and follow along. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, uh, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months uh, when she could not hide him, when she could hide him no longer, she took, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with a bitman and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would uh, be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river and while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it, and she opened it. She saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then the, his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. Then Pharaoh, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled troughs to water their father's flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, uh, Reuel, uh, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left this man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel uh, groaned because their slave of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob and saw the people of Israel and God knew. Let's pray this morning. 
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us uh, from your word, that you would have something for each and every one of us, uh, that we would listen to your word and respond, and that your Holy Spirit would be living and active. Uh, Give me the words to say this morning. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever met someone or or said of someone or had someone say of someone else, that person has a Messiah complex? They think they're the savior of the world. They're, they think they're the best, next best thing to slice bread. That, that kind of person that thinks you need them. That thinks they're a somebody and they insert themselves into everything and they make themselves the hero and they make themselves uh, the savior. And they end up coming across most times looking prideful, looking arrogant, thinking they're better than everybody else. I'll jump in here and I'll, I'll fix this for you. We're in a passage of Scripture where God is going to teach us what salvation uh, entails. God is going to show His providence in preparing Moses and raising Moses up. And yet Moses, I think, in the middle of this passage, kind of comes down with a, a savior complex. Kind of comes down with, a, well, I'm going to jump in here and I'm going to do something about this problem. And it's well before God is ready for Moses. Moses, if you will, jumps the gun on this. And you see Moses kind of asserting himself and putting himself into the role of the Savior rather than letting God appoint him to be the deliverer. This passage teaches us a truth that we find through all of Scripture, and that's simply this, that God alone saves. We are not the saviors of ourselves. We cannot save other people. We cannot be self reliant when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our spiritual life, when it comes to growing in the Lord, we need the grace of God. We need a faith that depends solely upon God and looks outside of ourselves, admits that we have no ability, and looks to the Lord Jesus Christ. God alone saves We want to kind of have three movements, if you will, in the narrative of this passage. And that's first how God saves Moses the baby. Then we see how Moses himself tries to act like a savior and ends up in in exile, if you will, sojourning. And then we'll see how God hears and has compassion. So that's kind of the three uh, points that we're going for this morning. First, God saves the helpless. So here you have Moses being born uh, uh, as a baby. Uh, in a time where they're trying to kill all the sons that are born. Remember that from last week. And they're supposed to throw them in the river. And God saves Moses through the river. So the baby is born. Uh, look at verses 1 and 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman when she conceived and bore a son. Uh, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. It's interesting here, this language of she saw he was a fine child is literally something like she saw that he was good. Uh, it's, I think it's an echo of Genesis, right? Remember how when God in the beginning makes his creation, what does he do when he sees the creation? He says what? It is good. Of course, he says to the man, and on the last day, it is very good. So, so you know, mothers and parents, we, we dote on our children, right? We, 
your baby is always the cutest baby, right? And it, it could it could come out with like all ugly and and hair that's sticking every direction and and a crooked nose, and you're you're the parent. You're like, oh, this baby is so pretty because it's yours. I think this is getting at more than just mom loving her child. The book of Exodus begins, as we saw last week, hinting at some connections to Genesis, that this is still part of God's same story. And just as God put Adam in the garden uh, and, and Adam and Eve, and he said, this is good, God is, is raising up Moses, and, and we are reminded that this is good from the words of the mother. Now, I don't think she understood all that she was saying when she said this, but I think in terms of how the narrative goes forward, it's supposed to like prod our thinking and go, I've seen that word before. It reminds me of Genesis. And so in the book of Hebrews, we find out about Moses' mom and dad. By faith, when Moses was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And you remember last week how we talked about how the the midwives were not afraid of the king. And so we, we see here in Joseph's mom and dad, we see an example of godly faith. They are not afraid of the king. They don't yield to the king. It's, it's an act of civil disobedience. Uh, they hide the child. Second, you'll see then when the child gets older, she puts him in a basket. So, verse 3, she can't hide him any longer. It says she took, him, uh, took for him a basket and made, made of bulrushes and she dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. It's interesting. Again, here we have another echo to Genesis. The word for basket is actually the same word used for the word ark. So you have Moses and his big ark, right, that can hold all the animals. And now you have, excuse me, Noah and his big ark. Now you have Moses and his, his tiny ark. And just like uh, Noah covers his ark with pitch so it will float, uh, Moses' mom covers this ark with bitumen and pitch, so it will float. The word here, basket or ark, is used only in Scripture to talk about Noah's ark or Moses' basket. Moses is saved by the very Nile that he's supposed to die in. So you go back to Exodus 1.22, right? The Pharaoh commanded all the people, his son, the, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast him into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The, the Nile is supposed to be a place of death now and judgment and condemnation for, for the Hebrew children, for the, for the boys that are born uh, to the Israelites. And, and what is God going to do? He's going to put Moses in a basket and uh, Moses is literally going to float across the condemnation and death, float across that place of judgment, almost like when Noah builds the ark, the judgment of God in in the water rains down on creation. And what does God do? He spares his people through the water by giving them something to float on. I think there's kind of this narrative analogy. He floats then also uh, among the reeds. And this is the same word that we get the name of the Red Sea from. And so here it kind of, I think, foreshadows uh, the people of God crossing the Red Sea, they they cross through it. And here's uh, Moses in his little basket, his little ark. He's floating through the reeds. It's, it's to show us, you know, just as God will later 
protect the people of God and part the Red Sea. Here he's, he's concerned not only with the millions of people, but he's concerned with this one tiny little baby. He's protecting him in the ark and he's protecting them on the river through, through, the, through the reeds. There does seem to be, I think, here in Moses' life, a, a sort of what we call typology, where, where there's some symbolism that points to something that's going to come later. And the things here that Moses goes through, I think, is symbolic of, of God's salvation. God protecting him, just like he saved his people in the ark. He saved Noah and his family, just like he's going to save uh, the people of God at the Red Sea. So Moses, if you will, experiences salvation before he becomes uh, the leader of God's people. Then, of course, we have the Egyptian princess. She finds Moses in verses uh, four through six. And I, I think we got to just say, isn't it amazing that she just happened to be walking down by the river to go take a bath when Moses was there. And isn't it amazing that she just happened upon the spot where Moses is floating in the basket? This is the providence of God. And the providence of God is just this language of describing how God directs and controls and cares for all things. If you are a child of God, God cares for you. And so you can look at things in your life and you can say that was the hand of God. That was his providence. That was his taking care of me. Now, God is in control of all things. And so sometimes when, when we don't like what happens, we, we struggle understanding what God is doing. But you've probably had scenarios in your life, maybe where you just miss that car accident or circumstances just happen to all uh, work out, Right. You know, the same day that you get a bill, uh, your husband gets some overtime hours or something like that. And you go and you look and say, that is the providence of God. That is God being good to me, protecting me, caring for me. These incidences and circumstances that just happen to line up just right. It's not luck. It's the work of God. We live in a world where people sometimes even who believe in God think that God is distant and up in heaven and far away and uncaring and unconcerned. The God of the Bible is living and active and he guides and directs things. History is moving towards the goal that he has ordained, the end that he has established. And yet even in that, God cares for you. And God cares for the little child here, the little Moses. And of course, uh, we have the princess saying this is one of the Hebrew children. It's interesting also that Moses' sister has stayed along and kind of hidden along the banks uh, to watch Moses uh, from a distance. And, and we don't know if, if mom and dad told her to do this or if she kind of just did this of his, her own initiative. Uh, but very obviously, God uses uh, the sister here. And this is Miriam, we think, of course. So uh, she comes and approaches Pharaoh's daughter and says, you know what, shall I go and, and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse uh, the child for you? I mean, this would have been a fairly common practice in, in uh, you know, even down into the Middle Ages and stuff. Rich people could often have nursemaids and, and those sorts of things. Uh, but again, obviously, how does God work this out? Moses' own mom 
gets her son back to be the nurse. And what's kind of cool about this is then she starts getting paid to be the nurse. Like, moms, how many of you would like that, right? Like, okay, just write me a check for taking care of my kids, you know. And the husbands would be like, we'd have no money if we had to pay you your hourly wage or uh, better make it salary. But then we still couldn't afford all that moms uh, do. But you think about this. Here are these poor, oppressed Israelite people, the Israelite family. She abandons her son, but it's in an act of trusting the child to God. God takes care of the child. He protects it. Has, has Pharaoh's daughter come along? And then, not only does the mom get her son back in his infancy, now they have a means of support. Now they have some extra income coming in, all for taking care of their own son. Again, the hand and providence of God. So then we see that Moses is named. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. So she does have to to give him up at at some point, and, and I'm sure this was not... Uh, an easy thing to do or difficult. Uh, I'm sure it was difficult, excuse me. Uh, she brings him to Pharaoh's daughter and, and he became her son. So, so Moses is sort of in an adoptive relationship here. He's had all the rights and privileges of being uh, in the Pharaoh's family, one of Pharaoh's grandsons, if you will, one of Pharaoh's daughter's sons. He's royalty at this point. He would have had access to the palace. He would have had access to the food at the table. Uh, he would have had, I'm sure, riches and servants and all of these things. And, and here, then, the Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses. And she says, because I drew him out of the water. So it's interesting here. Uh, the word uh, Moses is very similar, same consonants as the word to draw. So his his name kind of has some uh, symbolic meaning here, that she drew him up out of the water. And Moses is going to be the one who draws God's people up out of the land uh, of slavery. And so it foreshadows some things uh, that are to come. In the Bible, of course, names often have symbolic meanings. This is why you'll see a little bit later on, actually, uh, Moses' future father-in-law has two names. Uh, he's given one name in chapter 2, and then the beginning of chapter 3, he's also called Jethro. It doesn't mean he had multiple father-in-laws or the scriptures contradicting himself. It's kind of like in our world. Sometimes you have a name and then you have a nickname. Uh, sometimes in the ancient world you had two names, depending on what you were known by or known for. David says in the Psalms, of God, He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. He set me on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. That's talking about God. But here you have Pharaoh's daughter doing the same for Moses. So what do we see here first? One, we do see God caring for the helpless. We do see God caring for the children, the babies, we do see God protecting Moses from his death. There's obviously stuff going on in our country right now of, of immigrants where their families are ripped away from each other. And it's, it's shameful. I'm certainly not uh, opposed to, you know, we need to guard our borders and, and we have laws about immigration. But yet at the same time, God cares for little children. And we need to have that same care and we need to have that same compassion. You also see here, again, God is tender-hearted. We sometimes think of God as this one who is very distant. 
We sometimes think of God as one who is always angry at our sins. And yes, God is angry at sin, and he does judge sin. That's not to minimize that for a second. But you have to understand the whole character of God. And one of the unfortunate things is we don't know our Old Testament, and sometimes when we don't know our Old Testament, we think, well, in the Old Testament, God was harsh and mean and angry and judging. And in the New Testament and in Jesus, He's kind and loving and compassionate. Just read Exodus and you see how false that is. Just read the book of Revelation and you see how false that is. God is both love and faithfulness to His holiness, which brings justice in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And most of all, as God redeems His people, He shows His abounding love. He shows His care for those who are weak, for those who are helpless, for those who are needy. And if we believe that God is a God who redeems, we should have compassion on the same types of people who are in the same types of situations and need help, both in terms of physical needs, but also in terms of spiritual needs. We should have compassion for the helpless, because that's the character of God. Second, this morning, as we go along here, we want to show how Moses kind of uh, thinks of himself as a savior, I think, here. And Moses is not the savior of himself or in and of himself. Moses, I think, in the next section, takes action of his own accord. He sort of means well. And yet, He doesn't follow the will of God. So, we see Moses, it says, verse 11, One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So, instead of staying in the plush uh, castle, if you will, in in the royal house of Pharaoh, Moses goes back to his people. The book of Hebrews says that this was by Moses' faith. Hebrews chapter 11, 24 to 25. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Excuse me. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So Moses chooses to identify with God's people rather than hanging out in Pharaoh's house where they would have worshipped all kinds of idols, where there would have been all kinds of uh, immorality that went on. He rather is willing to bear the stigma of associating with the lowly, of going back to his people. He goes from riches to rags. He goes from privilege and power and the posh life to the mockery, to the degradation, to the being a slave. Hebrews 11.26 says this, Moses considered the reproachment of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses wasn't looking to the reward of the earthly things. Moses apparently understood who God was, who God's people were. And he was willing to associate with God's people 
and in this way associate with the reproaches of Christ. And of course, Hebrews is writing this to people who wouldn't uh, turn their backs on the Lord Jesus Christ, but would bear some affliction, would be willing to be mocked and not depart Christ. And Moses, in the same sort of way, wants to be associated with God and God's people. The children of Israel are God's firstborn son, Exodus 4.22. And Moses goes back to his people, I think it is to say, to be a child of God. It seems to me, and maybe I'm reading a little too much into this, so I want to be careful, but it seems to me, where would Moses have learned about this? I think Moses would have learned about it from his mom and probably his dad, but from his mom when she is raising him and nursing him. Never underestimate moms and dads the impact that you can have on a child when they're young. Never underestimate when you can start telling them the truths of Scripture. Sometimes we think, well, you know, we'll wait until we know they understand it. So some of your kids are are infants, some of your kids are, are just learning to talk, and maybe you say, well, you know, they're, they're just not ready for the Bible stories yet. But how do you teach your children to read? You read to them. And what better things to read to them than the Scriptures? Or at least from a children's version or Bible. You teach your children to talk by talking to them. Why not talk to them about the things of God? Never underestimate when a child can hear the Scriptures and how God will use that. You see here, though, Moses makes a fatal mistake. And I think part of what is going on here is is definitely, obviously, Moses has compassion. It, It angers him. He looks upon their burdens. He doesn't like it. But then when he takes action, he does it in all the wrong ways. And I think this is where there's this idea of Moses thinking he's going to fix the problem for himself. I'm just going to jump in there and do this. And so you look at verse 12. So verse 11, he sees the Egyptian beating the Hebrew person. This clearly isn't right. Moses understands this is one of my people. I've got to jump in here. I'm going to save them. But then it says in verse 12, he looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, let me ask you this. Why would you look this way and that? You only look over your shoulder and look to see if people are watching when you are going to do something that you know could get you in trouble. Like your kids, they only look around to find where you are to see if they can get, well, that's not totally true, but you know how it is when your kids want to know where you are just so they know what they can get away with. Uh, th- this is the sort of thing, you know, when you're, when you're driving down the road and you, you're, you look to see where the cops are so you can see if you can get away with speeding. This is Moses. And I think by implication here, he's not only taking action, but he understands that what he's doing isn't right. Not, not only in terms of, of um, killing someone. So, so this isn't just, you know, you jump in to protect someone and you accidentally kill them in, in manslaughter. Like you didn't intend to. Like, like there's an element of, of premeditation to this. If you can stop, if you can look around this way and that way. So you didn't just look. You looked this way. You looked that way. And, and you're, you're specifically checking all the angles. Is anybody watching? 
you know you're going to do something. And you know it's going to get you in trouble. And I think it's not just that he knows that Pharaoh is powerful and can kill him. I think it's that he knows that this was wrong. That there would have been another way to stop this other than just killing. And so he kills the man and he hides his body in the sand. The next day, uh, two Israelites are fighting in front of him. It says, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong. So here's Moses trying to be the peacemaker, trying to be uh, the savior again, if you will. Why do you strike your companion? Like we're brothers. Why, why are you fighting each other? Let's fight the Egyptians. They're the real bad guys. And, and what do they say to him? This is kind of the who made you the boss. So they say, who made you a prince and a judge over us? So sometimes when our kids are fighting, and I'm sure this happens in your home, right? Somebody comes in and, and tries to, one of the other kids come in to try to break it up. Typically, it's some of the younger kids are fighting and one of the older kids, kids comes in and tries to, you know, stop that. You're going to get in trouble. Mom's going to get angry. We shouldn't be doing this. Let's let me solve this. And, and what do the kids say? And I did this with my siblings, too. Right. You're not my boss. You're not the mom. How dare you tell me what to do? And then on top of this, they say, what are you going to do? Kill me. And Moses realizes in that moment, somebody Saul or word got out that he had killed this Egyptian. If these two people know about it, how many other people know about it? So either one of two things happened. Either somebody was watching and Moses missed them when he was looking this way or that. Or uh, the guy that, that Moses saved started talking about how Moses killed this Egyptian. Uh, we don't know exactly how it happened, but the point is that word got out. And you almost have to wonder if this this dig here, who made you a prince and a judge over us, is because they do think that Moses is being somewhat prideful and arrogant. And they perhaps know that he grew up in Pharaoh's house. He lived the posh life growing up. And now, what, you're going to come down here and be our prince? You're going to come down here and be our judge? I think the subtle indication is, and I want to be careful not to read too much into this, but I think the subtle indication is Moses thinks that he can be the savior, that he thinks that he can be the leader, that he can take the action. And he's sort of, if you will, jumping the gun on the plans and purposes of God. He's not letting God lift him up and put him in this role. He's jumping into this role for himself. We're not told what all of Moses' motives were, but the fact that he was scared then, I think, indicates that, that there was some selfishness involved in exalting himself and jumping in here. So, so his, his, what he saw, his motives, that he saw the burdens was right. The way he acted, I'm going to jump in here, I'm going to be the fixer of this, I'm going to solve this, was wrong. And I think one of the things, their rebuke of him, what, are you a prince? Are you going to be our judge? I think it indicates that they saw something in Mo Moses' motives. Now, it's interesting. We read Exodus 18 today, and actually Moses later on becomes the judge of Israel. He becomes a prophet and, and their leader. Uh, he becomes, if you will, their, their prince. And that word can mean a number of different uh, different things in terms of commander and ruler and, and those sorts of things. And then later on, the judging gets so intense, there's so much to judge, he has to delegate, as we saw. 
But that was after God had raised him up and put him in this position. So we're moving along in the narrative, right? And he flees then. Pharaoh heard of it. He sought to kill Moses. Verse 15, Moses runs away to the land of Midian. So quite a ways uh, away. He heads east. Uh, and Midian would have been east of, of Israel and, and to the south a little bit right below uh, the Dead Sea there. So he gets there and he finds a priest of Midian who has seven daughters and they would come to the well and the water. And so here again, Moses becomes a rescuer. Uh, the, the women are coming out. They want to feed the sheep. The other shepherds uh, are, are being cruel and, and preventing the women uh, from watering their flocks. And it says, Moses stood up and saved them. So Moses acts as a deliverer here. Moses steps in and he does the right thing. He sees someone who's helpless. He sees someone, you know, and and women in that culture would have been looked down on. And and particularly here are all these men who are are, um, shepherds. And here are these seven daughters. And and there would have been kind of probably a sexist uh, approach from these male shepherds. And what does Moses do? Uh, He steps in. And he helps the women and he stands up for them, saves them, it says, and he waters their flock. So they come home to their father, uh, Reuel, who's later called Jethro, Jethro, and they say, you know, how do you come? How'd you get home so quick, girls? And they said, well, there's this Egyptian that delivered us. So they still think uh, that he's just being from Egypt. They still think he's an Egyptian. And they say he drew the water out. And then they say the father says, where is he? Uh, why have you left this man? Call him that he may eat uh, bread. So here again, Moses is highlighted as a savior and a deliverer. He settles then in the land uh, of Jethro in, in Midia. He marries the daughter Zipporah, verse 21. When they have a child, he says this. He names him Gershom, for he says, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And you, sojourner is like alien uh, it's, it's a traveler, someone from outside the country who, who migrates in, almost like an immigrant, if you will. And, and the word Gershom, the name, has that root of, of the word uh, sojourner or alien. Moses goes through here an experience much like Israel goes through. Later on in Exodus, we're told this, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Exodus 29 or 23, 9. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So here Israel is oppressed in the land. She's, uh, she's come from outside the land. She's emigrated, if you will. She's down there in Egypt. She's being oppressed. She knows what it's like. Moses has to flee Egypt, the land where all his people was. And so he becomes a sojourner, an alien in a different land. And he would have had some experiences with how tough and hard it is. And he's 40 years, the book of Acts tells us. He's 40 years in the land of Midian, exiled from his people. The hard life of being a shepherd. Moses learns that he couldn't exalt himself, that he couldn't save himself, that it had to be at God's proper time. What are some implications and some applications that we should draw from this? First, I think what you'll see later on in the life of Moses, Moses goes on to be a man of incredible humility. 
He's commended for that in the Scriptures. And I think it's a reminder of the experiences that God put Moses through, shaped him to be humble. Do not exalt yourself. Humble yourself. Even if God has given you gifts or talents, seek to use those talents, but don't think you're the next best thing to slice bread. Don't think that you can just put yourself into all of these positions. That doors should open up for you. That you need to, people need to recognize my greatness. You are not your own Savior. Sometimes people get this mindset in the church. Well, God's given me some talents and I need to use them. Well, amen if you have gifts that you want to use. But don't think that you're the Savior of the church. Don't think that you're the Savior of God's people. Even if God puts people in your life that He calls you to help, that He calls you to minister to, you do that as a servant of God. And so be careful when you're helping people, when you're aiding them, when you're doing good things for them. And and even when you get like Moses and you see something that's wrong and it angers you and you say, you know what, I'm going to step up and I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to do something about it. Be really careful that you examine your own motives. Am I doing this to prove something about myself? Am I doing this to pat myself on the back? Am I doing this so that God can make me somebody? Because God needs me and my gifts? Or am I doing it as a humble, faithful servant? In your spiritual life, do not rely upon yourself. Rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told again in Hebrews, as I've already mentioned, that Moses did these things, at least initially, by faith. Do you and I walk by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? When He gives us tasks, do we step into them and do them willingly? Or do we do them with pride? God's timing and His plan are perfect. Moses here jumps the gun on the plans and purposes of God. Moses wants, I think, to deliver God's people. He sees the wrong that's going on. But rather than going to God in prayer and saying, you know, would you have me do something about this? What can I do, Lord? Oh, Lord, raise up someone to take care of this. Can I help in some way? Moses just assumes if I see that it's wrong, I need to take action. God's not ready to use Moses yet. God's going to have Moses learn 40 hard years in the wilderness, shepherding stinky sheep so that he is well-trained to, to shepherd the grumbling people of God out of Egypt. Sometimes your timing and God's timing don't line up. That God's given you a call, you feel that burden, you want to do these things, but you need to wait for God's timing. Sometimes we need to take initiative and there's an appropriateness to that, but make sure that you're doing it and submission to God. Are you asking God to open the door? Are you asking God to use you at the proper time? I think when we're younger, we see our talents, we see our abilities. We have a youthfulness and excitement. I'm going to just jump in here and do these things. And sometimes God's plan is, wait, I need to develop you more. 
I want you to grow more. I want to use you maybe in these small ways to shape you so that you're ready for the things that I've gifted you for. Trust the plan of God. Finally, this morning, we want to see how this passage ends. And this is that God is going to save his people. So God waiting here on Moses is not because God is is not compassionate or doesn't see these things. God's timing is perfect. But notice here how the passage had started or late earlier in the passage, Moses had seen what's going on. And now we're reminded that God saw what was going on. If Moses was ready to jump in and save God's people, why didn't God let it happen? Because God's ways are not your ways. God's ways are not my ways. His timing is perfect. His plans are perfect. His acts of redemption are perfect. And so we have Israel groaning and crying out to God. Verse 23, During those many days the king of Egypt died, And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Let me just say as an aside here, uh, sometimes people will use the Bible to say, well, see, the Bible allowed for slavery or the Bible approved of slavery. It doesn't take you very far in your reading in Exodus to see God hated the slavery and oppression that was upon his people. There are passages in Scripture that do put some very strict rules on on what we might call indentured servanthood. Although in Scripture, the language is slave. It's the same sort of language. But there were ethical boundaries of how you treat people. And oftentimes in the ancient world, slavery was different in that you could buy yourself out of it. It was a, a temporary thing. So it's not the slavery, same types of slavery that we see in our own past in America. But notice here, God has compassion and hears the cry of his people as they are being oppressed. God hates oppression. And God delights when those who are being oppressed cry out to him. And he wants his children, us, to cry out to him and look to him for help and deliverance. So, verse 24, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and with Jacob. Now, this doesn't mean that God forgot. Like, you know, oh man, where did I put my people? Uh, Let's see, they went down into Egypt. Oh man, they're still there. Oh, I did make those promises to Abraham. Ooh, I. All right. Well, I guess I better get on. No, this is a way of saying the reason that God is acting is because he has promised. God sees what they're going through. God has designated that they would be his children, his sons, he'll say in chapter four. God keeps his word. God binds himself by promises. Therefore, why does God do what he does? Because he himself said he would. Hebrews brings this out and says, you know, when when we make promises, we swear by an oath and we swear by another name. When God makes a promise, because there's no one higher and greater than God, God swears by his own name to show us that he will do these things. God is showing us His glory, His majesty, His power in that 
He is a promise-keeping God. How do you and I know that we can have salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because He keeps His promises. How do you know that as a believer, God will never leave you or forsake you? It's not because of your ability to cling to God. It's because God keeps His promises. And so He remembers this covenant. He says, yeah, I've promised to do this. And it looks like for a period of time I was letting Pharaoh win. I was letting the people be oppressed. But I haven't forgotten you. I remember what I said. And now when the time is right so that I can show the magnificence of my glory against this Pharaoh who thinks he's all powerful and has all this might, I'm going to show you who the boss is and you will see my glory, God is saying. Why? Because I keep my promises. It is to you in the Lord Jesus Christ that God keeps His promises. How do you know you can trust God? How do you know even that God is there and He hears you when, he, when you cry out, like when you really pray in prayer, have you ever been in one of those situations where, where you're, you're at the end of the rope and you're praying like crazy and you have that moment, or maybe it's even longer than a moment, and it passes through your head and you go, is God really hearing me? Look how long I've been going through this hardship. God, are you even there? The psalmist prays that way sometimes. You've got to be careful here. There's a fine line we walk. There are times where it's just desperation and it's okay to pray that. And then there are times where, where we need to repent of that if we, if, if we are doubting in inappropriate ways. And yet God is good. And even in those cries, God doesn't say, well, how dare you doubt me? God keeps His promises And he hears the groaning of his people. Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. I think there are almost no greater words in Scripture than than that, at least maybe in the book of Exodus. God knew. And God knows you. And God knows what you're going through. And God knows what your struggle is what you're wrestling with, a sin you're trying to overcome, a hardship in life, something that's constantly plaguing you or oppressing you. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a fight with a family member. God knows. And He hears your cries. And He'll act in a way that shows His glory, that shows you His goodness, that shows you that He loves you. And if it's not in this life, it will most certainly be in the next life where you will be in the presence of God and you will see firsthand God did not forget you even though maybe in the darkness of the hour you felt like He did for a moment. God doesn't forget. God is this merciful God who who unites Himself by covenant to His people most of all in Jesus Christ. And this is why we say, God alone 
saves. Do you trust God? Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness, for your kindness, for your love that you've given us in Christ Jesus. We praise you for all that you've done and all that you have done in keeping your promises down through the ages to your people. And most of all, how you kept your promise in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that as we think about you, as we think about how we often try to bail ourselves out or save ourselves or do it our way, that we would actually sit back and trust that if we cry out to you, you hear. You rescue your children. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.